Today's Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 to 16. It's on your purple sheet. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked on the soil. In the course of the time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching on your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer virgins seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one will find him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nook, east of Eden. This is the word from the Lord. Thank you, Marlon. If you have that purple paper, that would be great to have out for your reference as we go through that together this morning. Allow me to pray and ask for God's help. Father, we ask you to open our eyes and open our ears to what you have to say to us in your word. Please help me as I speak to speak your truth and for your truth to find a home in um, my hearers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder 
if any of you are fans of the true crime genre of television show or podcast. We have one. The lawyer is a fan of the true crime. He's trying to figure out how to get his clients off, is he? No. <laughs> oh, okay, yes. Yes, he is. Anyone else? Catherine's sister is one of the biggest fans uh, that I know. She listens to um, murder podcasts, for lack of a better term, about uh, serial killers and crime sprees. And we won't go into any gruesome details this morning for uh, the sake of children who are present with us, but some of you must enjoy these things because they keep popping up on my Netflix queue, right? The new show, Making a Murderer, or whatever the, the latest thing is. There's something grimly fascinating about it, isn't there? You know, we want to know what could drive a person to do that sort of thing. And how did they get caught? And most importantly, how do I avoid being the victim of the next one? It makes for compelling viewing. And in our reading this morning, we have the prototype for every dysfunctional family, every act of religious violence, every murder. And the author of Genesis puts it here, not to make his book a, a bestseller, but so that uh, we will understand the world around us much better and the effects of sin on the human heart. Because you know, if we trace back our family line all the way, we find that this is our family. If we look deep enough into our own hearts, we find the same sorts of motives and impulses in us. If we lift our eyes to the heavens, we, we see the same God there, watching over it all. And I want to, to break this passage in, into two, verses 1 to 8, the counterfeit worship of Cain, and verses 9 through 16, the, um, the blood that speaks. We said a few weeks ago in uh, one of the sermons that this section from chapter 2, verse 4 through chapter 4, verse 26 is the first major section of Genesis. It's the, the first chapter, as it were, of the book. And it's a tightly constructed narrative. So every part relates to every other part in this section. And so you really have to read the whole section as a whole in order to understand any given part. And chapter 2 showed the glory of life as God had created it, the world as he created it, a paradise. Chapter 3 showed the tragic turn of events of, of sin coming into the world, of humanity siding with the demonic and rejecting God's rule, being, their eyes being open to shame and, and to uh, difficulty in life. And that's the world that we live in now, the, the world we're all too familiar with. And in chapter 4, we see the effects of that decision to choose sin spreading out and polluting the whole creation. And I think it's made so much sadder because it's living memory uh, to them, the Garden of Eden. They remember what it was like, how good it was, and now they're here, east of Eden. That life outside the garden starts on a, help, on a hopeful note in chapter 4, verse 1. 
Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel, and now Abel kept the flocks, and Cain worked the soil. As so many women, the daughters of Eve, have seen in their own lives since, Eve saw the, the hand of the Lord in the birth of her son, in the birth of her child. She saw his birth as a, a work of partnership between herself and God. Together with the Lord, I've made a man. She's joining in with that creative work. Even though she has turned away from the Lord in sin, she still has a part to play. And she remembered God's words as well. God had said, you'll remember from last week, that um, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so perhaps she's thinking, as she sees this new son, maybe this is the one. Maybe he's going to deliver us. And we don't know much about the first sons of humanity, other than their eventual professions. Cain was the elder brother, so as elder brothers do, he, he took on the work of his father in farming. And Cain, uh, sorry, and Abel became the first shepherd. Both of them were doing that working and protecting work that God had given to Adam to do. And although work was more difficult than it had been in Eden, perhaps they began to acclimatize to this new reality, the new normal in the fallen world. And there was, there was relation, evidence of relationship with God even in the fallen world. I, I wonder if you noticed that. Though their sin had separated them from God, um, Adam and Eve clearly knew how they should relate to him. They, were, they had taught their children to offer sacrifices to God. What does an offering do? Well, an offering is an act of, um, well, it does two things. It's an act of acknowledging that everything comes from the Lord and giving him thanks for it. And so that's why when we would normally receive the offertory bags in a service, they would come up and I would say something like, yours, Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, and the majesty. All things in heaven and on earth are from your hand, and of your own do we give you. Right? Because we're giving thanks for what God has given to us. And the second thing that a sacrificial offering does is that it makes atonement for sin, a payment for sin by costly sacrifice. Even in a fallen world, right worship can happen, and that's what we see in this chapter. Yet soon enough, there is a crisis that takes place. In verse 3, we see, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Come the end of the agricultural year, uh, Cain and Abel brought the, the produce that they had, had created. And yet, God only looked on Abel and his offering with favor. Uh, why is that? I think that's the big question of this section. Why would God reject somebody who is bringing an offering to him? Isn't Cain trying to do the right thing? The author, he doesn't tell us explicitly why, but I think if we pay close attention to what he does say, 
and then we use a little bit of reasoning from the scripture, we can, we can pretty solidly um, conclude. First, do you see how Cain's offering is described? Some of the fruits of the soil. Now that seems all right, but then we read how Abel's offering is described. The fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. The contrast, I think, suggests something, right? Where Cain, he's just brought some fruits. Abel has brought the best bits. He's brought the firstborn sheep. And he's brought not just the scrawny firstborn, but the fat firstborn sheep, right? The good stuff, considered the, the most flavorful portion. Abel seems to be giving something of the best of what he's produced, at, while Cain seems to be giving just any old thing. There is a, a supermarket in the UK, and some of you may know it. It sells wonky produce, is what they call it. Wonky produce for a cheaper price. That's Produce that is misshapen, slightly discolored, and they sell it to you for a markdown rate. And Cain, I think, is doing that sort of thing here. Cain might be thinking, well, this stuff is a bit wonky. These papaya, they maybe were um, past their, their ripeness. Uh, the slugs has eaten a bit of this lettuce. Uh, these mushrooms, I don't even know if these ones are edible, but what does it matter? I'm giving it to God. He's just going to burn it up and... And nobody will care. Nobody will be any the wiser. It doesn't really matter. And so from a close reading of what is actually here, I think we begin to build a picture that there's this different quality in their offerings that implies a different attitude in their worship. And that alone, maybe that's not a strong enough evidence for us. And so... Um, one of the other ways that we can begin to, to understand this better is, is to think in terms of the, the broader picture of Scripture, to reason from the rest of Scripture. And I think that makes the picture even clearer, because what kind of offerings does God demand, and what kind does he refuse as Scripture goes on? Well, Israel's sacrificial laws put a, a big emphasis on offering God the first fruits of the harvest and the firstborn of the flocks. He wants an offering to be made at the beginning of what you're going to receive, it, it, as, a, as a sign of faith that there's more to come. And while the people are uncertain, how big is the harvest going to be? Well, that shouldn't determine your thankfulness to God. And so uh, the firstborn, the, the, the first grains of rice, were given over. It's a risky way of showing your faith because you don't know what's coming next. And God also insists in the law that he only wants unblemished offerings, okay? So, so only what's without illness, only what's without deformity, only what's not discolored, only that should be offered to God. Not only the first, but the best. And so the content of our offering clearly matters to God. Uh, later in Scripture, then, the, the prophets begin to condemn Israel because although they're offering the right things in their, in their sacrifices, they're ignoring what God says to them in the rest of their lives. So they go to the temple, they make their sacrifice, they walk out, and they start abusing the weak and, 
oppressing the poor and uh, committing evil deeds. And because of their hypocrisy, God says to them, your sacrifices are worthless and they disgust me. They are a stench in my nostrils. And so the consistency of the person offering the sacrifices clearly matters to God as well. The picture from the rest of the Old Testament, therefore, tells us that God demands the best of our sacrifices, not our scraps, and that God refuses to accept offerings that are really from religious lip service and hypocrisy. But can we really be sure that's what's going on with Cain? Well, as we would do any time there's a confusing portion of the Old Testament, uh, we can always look to see, is this referenced in the New Testament? Does anybody talk about this story or, or this issue? And in the New Testament, we find even greater clarity about what's going on with Cain and Abel. Um, the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 11, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Did you hear how that started? By faith. The reason why the, the content and the, the consistency of our offerings to God really matter was because it says something about our faith in God. Abel's sacrifice was acceptable because he gave it by faith. He believed it was right to offer the firstborn, the, the fat portions, because he believed God was worthy of all his praise. He believed that, that God deserved it. Worship was a risky bet on God. Whatever Cain offered, it wasn't offered in faith to God, but out of self-interest. Why did he offer it? Well, maybe to do the bare minimum to keep his family off his back. Maybe to earn God's blessing. Maybe to get rid of his wonky fruit. His worship was entirely safe, without risk at all. And we could call that counterfeit worship. You know counterfeits, right? If you go to the ladies' market and you buy a, a, a Gucci bag that costs $100 and you know it's not the real thing and you look at it more closely and you, you know. Cain's worship was counterfeit because it was faithless worship. Now, Cain, he, he may have been the first to offer counterfeit worship, but he certainly was not the last. Wherever somebody worships merely out of a sense of religious duty or, um, well, where they worship out of a sense of religious duty rather than a sense that God is worthy of worship and praise, that's counterfeit worship. Wherever religious people act piously in order to impress others and, and get people to think, look how good at, at, at I am. Look how well I've done. That's counterfeit worship. Wherever good deeds are done to earn a blessing from God 
rather than out of thankfulness to God. That's counterfeit worship. It's what I do in order to get something for myself. And we could look around at all the other religions. We could point the finger at people in temples and people in mosques and and in meditation classes around this city, and we could point the finger in all those places, but what about here? Are we convinced that we are offering God genuine worship? Because I think we all too easily settle for a counterfeit. We've seen that both the content and the attitude of our worship matter to God. They show our faith. So let's think about that for a moment. Do we offer God our best or our scraps? Do we make our growth as as disciples through prayer and Bible study a priority? Or do we just click the like button as we scroll through and see a Bible verse on social media? Do we make serving and encouraging God's people at church every week a priority? Or do we, do we turn up late? Do we shoot off early? Do we say nothing to anybody um, when there's nothing better to do on a Sunday? So we, we come when there's nothing better to do, and we're not really invested in the people here. Do we prayerfully and, and sacrificially give our money to fund gospel ministry? Or do we give what we can spare after all of our life's pleasures? And do we see what's in the coins in our pocket as we head out from the service and drop it in the box? The content of our offerings, of time, of of money, of ourselves, it really matters to God. Because it's an indicator of our faith. And the consistency of our offerings really matter to God. The consistency of what the rest of our lives show. Do we turn up at every church meeting and group and then treat our employers and our colleagues with contempt? Do we sacrificially give to the church but then deny our helpers and our employees what is their right? Are we known as outspoken Christians among our friends, but we secretly indulge in sinful behavior on the internet or or squandering our resources at betting shops or or whatever it may be? The consistency of our lives matter because it shows whether we're acting in faith or in hypocrisy. Now, all of us will at some point fail to worship God as we ought to do. I do. You will. And and the proper response when we realize, I haven't been worshiping him as he needs to be worshiped, as he deserves to be worshiped, the proper response to that is to repent, to turn, and to start, uh, to start anew, to offer genuine worship, but you can see that Cain's lack of faith is shown in his response. How does Cain respond? So Cain was very angry, we're told. His face was downcast. 
when Cain recognizes the error of his ways before God, he responds like a sullen, uh, like a, a pouting child, doesn't he? As though God should just take what he's offered and shut up, God. Uh, th- this is my offering. But God responds to Cain with even more grace, doesn't he? By urging him to reflect on his sin and to change. Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? The Lord knows why, but he asks him why, so he'll reflect. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you but you must rule over it. In this pivotal moment, notice how very far things have declined since the Garden of Eden in chapter 3. The temptation that Eve faced, that came from outside. The snake was subtly feeding her lies, as, as Eleanor was talking about earlier. But now Cain's temptation, it wells up within him. It comes out of him. Anger. God urges him to take the path of repentance, to turn before something more dire happens, and the consequences happen, but not even the voice of God can keep him from rushing headlong into sin. In verse 8, the the pacing of the narrative speeds up, and it conveys the haste with which Cain performs his plan. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And when they were out in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. God's favor was with Abel. And Cain's response? Anger, depression, murder. Why? Because he was envious. That's what 1 John 3 tells us. He was envious. Counterfeit worship cannot coexist side by side with genuine faith. Risky, genuine, beautiful faith will always expose the safety, the emptiness, the ugliness of counterfeit worship. And those who refuse to turn and embrace the only one who is worthy of all worship and praise, well, they'll seek to destroy faith so they won't be exposed. They can keep hiding. Cain's response is is Babylon's response, is the Pharisees' response, it's Rome's response, it's the response of godless people and empires today. But God will have the last word. And that's what we see in verses 9 to 16 from the, the blood that speaks. This section, it serves as a sort of parallel to chapter 3, where here again we have God seeking out the one who is hiding due to sin. He questions him, he pronounces a curse, and he casts him further out of his presence into exile. But notice how hardened sinful humanity has become in just one generation. Cain has just committed premeditated murder. And his response to God's question It's not fear, it's not regret, but again, childish defiance. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? 
I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? After God pronounces a curse on Cain that condemns him to restless wandering, Cain, he doesn't even show a hint of repentance, but only the sorrow that comes from punishment. This is too heavy for me, God. Well, perhaps you should have thought of that before you murdered. And yet, even in the face of rank rebellion against God, God shows Cain mercy by putting a mark on him that will protect him from the vengeance that he deserves. But I, I just want to focus on, in closing, the, the blood that speaks in, in verses 10 and 11. What God says of the blood of Abel, he reiterates throughout Scripture. Verse 10, the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The shedding of innocent blood is a horror that must be avenged and for which atonement must be made. That theological truth underpins so much criminal law and, and religious practice in Israel as Moses lays down uh, the law later on in their history. Shed blood cries out for justice against sin. And if justice isn't done, the people are polluted, the land itself is polluted, and people are driven out of it. Because God's presence cannot reside in a place polluted by blood guilt. But all of that which would come later is foreshadowed here in the blood of the first martyr of the faith, crying out from the ground for justice. And God heard. God always hears. It's important for us to know that God will ensure that justice is finally done in every single circumstance. Perhaps some of you, or perhaps someone you love, have been wronged in some way, in a very serious way. Maybe through violence or abuse. And the perpetrator, they seem to have gotten away with it. The scriptures are clear. In the end, no one gets away with anything. God hears the cries of oppressed people. He hears the cries of victims of sexual violence. He hears the cries of mistreated children. And when there is no one left to cry out, he even hears their blood crying out from the ground. God always hears. God will repay. And maybe you need to hear that this morning. But if that is good news, if we're like Abel, it is very bad news if we are like Cain. It is bad news for faithless people offering counterfeit worship. It is bad news for people who envy and scheme and shed innocent blood. In short, it is bad news for sinners, sinners like us. Because we haven't gotten away with anything either, and we won't. 
where is the hope for sinners like us? Well, I want to end on a message of hope, a note of hope. And the author of Hebrews, again referring back to this story in chapter 12, he says something strange in Hebrews chapter 12 when he speaks of Jesus' blood as the blood that speaks a better word. A blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. For while Abel's innocent blood, it cries out for justice against sin. Jesus' blood, Jesus' innocent blood, cries out for mercy for sinners. Abel's blood, it brought a curse on Cain for his wretchedness, but Jesus' blood brings a blessing that covers over the wretchedness of sinners who have faith in him. And that's why Christians, we no longer make offerings for sin. Jesus has made the last, the final, the full offering for sin. All we can offer are offerings of thanks and praise to him. By, by faith in Christ's blood, our guilt is covered. Our sin is atoned for. Our hope is secured. And so the God who ensures that justice will be done is the God who first holds out an offer of mercy. He's paid for it with his blood. It's for you. It's for me. It's good news. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that we sinners have hope because the blood of Christ speaks a better word. We confess to you that we have not offered you the worship that you so rightly deserve, and yet you are gracious to us. We thank you, we praise you, we lift up your name and glorify you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.